welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. So we are back, season four. We're thrilled to be back. We've been off the air for a couple of months, but we're back with new energy, new excitement, and new ideas that we can't wait to share with you. Today, it is just the three of us. We don't have a guest. We are going to talk about what has happened over the course of this summer, where we are now, and how the world is fundamentally changing in its response to the climate crisis, and what needs to be done in the crucial few months through to COP26. Thanks for being here. So friends, we are back. Season four. This is has been the longest break we've ever had in two years that we've been together. Um, this is has been. Good point. Good point. Yeah, it's a very good start to season four, isn't it? This has been the longest break that we have taken from being on air for the last two years. Uh, mm. We've been off for about the last six weeks doing various different mm. things. And in fact, what's been lovely is I've seen more of the two of you, I think, during the time we haven't been podcasting than I had for the previous maybe 18 months. We're such geeks that we we stopped working together and then went on holiday together. So there you go. It's been very nice. Yeah. Well, it's been very nice, especially Paul training uh, Tom's duck to dance. Did, did you I, all I, see that? For those who have no idea what we're talking about... Uh, Paul and Christiana came and spent a couple of weeks at my house in Devon, and we have an Indian runner duck that was raised from an egg by my daughter, and it is very, very friendly, and Paul taught it to dance hip-hop. So look at Christiana's Twitter feed. It, it won't sleep with the other ducks. It considers it's a human, and so I thought, if this duck thinks it's human, it can dance. And I mean, lots of animals can dance, but this duck can really dance. We've done something very serious to that duck psychologically. I don't know if it will ever recover, but, you know, we'll do our best. Um, how are you guys? You're you're now on the other side of the other side of the world, which I'm very sad about, but it's nice to see you. Um, and we are coming back now with season four with new energy and new ideas. Really, listeners may not be aware that outrage and optimism has been a sort of two year argument between me and Christiana. And over the course of this summer, we've realised, as we probably knew all along, or certainly <laughs> opposition Paul did, is futile. The opposition <laughs> is futile. So, Christiana, now's your moment. Well, so what's the plan, Christiana? Um, well, the plan is that um, our future episodes of Outrage and Optimism podcast are actually going to be shortened. We're going to squeeze everything into about 30 minutes, mm -hmm. uh, which makes, makes uh, actually much more work for us because we are still intending to provide uh, the insights and the fun. We don't want to sacrifice the fun. But we're going to try to squeeze it all into 30 minutes in response to the fact that the podcasting world has actually matured enormously mm, since yeah. we started, that there are many, many more podcasts out there, which is a very good thing. It is, thing. including many more climate podcasts, which is a very good thing. And we welcome all of them. It's fantastic. Many more yeah, climate. Yeah. That's a very, that is so exciting. So exciting. So in order to allow people to fit more podcasts into their day, um, and also to follow the trend that seems to be shorter podcasts, we are going to um, squeeze everything into 30 minutes or we shall attempt this. Stay tuned to whether we can actually do it. What we have to avoid doing is simply beginning to speak without really knowing how we're going to <laughs> end a sentence and then using quite a long period of time to sort of improvise and not knowing how you're going to end it keeping the sentence Clay, going you're going to have a lot of work to do time. at the top end of this podcast i um, know 
we we did actually discuss that there's going to be some some more Claire's going to have to use his scissors a bit more and there's going to be down. like the, the, the cutting room floor is going to be covered it's all electronic now isn't it but you know what yeah, I mean the yeah. metaphor of tape yeah, yeah no I know I know what a cutting room floor is by the way but if you go on too long I'm just gonna <laughs> There you go. Cut there it. you go. Okay. Make that noise. That's fine. I'm going to make I, I noise. Can take it. Cut. I can cut. take cut. it. But Christiana's being very generous because the point she's made that the podcasting world has changed in the two years that we've been on the air is the argument that I have made for why I am now acquiescing to what she has said from the very beginning, which is from that the any very more beginning. than half an hour is too much. Now, we know because we can track these things, although we can't track anything, that those of you who listen, and we love you for listening, um, actually do tend to listen all the way to the end of the podcast. But we are very mindful of time. People are feeling more compressed in their time. People want things that are focused and snappy. And so we are going to put that challenge to ourselves to limit outrage and optimism to 30 minutes. We will have, as previously... No, 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 wait, wait, wait. We're not limiting either outrage or optimism to 30 minutes. That's a good point, We're just yeah. limiting the episode to The episode. Minutes. Outrage and optimism continues to be infinite, of course, and are called for at 100% yes. at all times. But the podcast itself Thank will be you. limited to 30 minutes. So uh, as ever, we will have a quick chat at the front end talking about the news, what's happening, climate impacts, solutions, what's going on from a policy perspective, technology, weather-related, etc. We will then, in general have an interview with you, as you're very familiar with. We're going to keep it tight. Those of you who've been paying attention will have noticed that in our interviews, we tend to have multiple different topics that we roam across. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to say, here is the one topic that is most important to speak to this person about. We're going to hammer on it for 10 minutes, and then we're going to come back for a few minutes at the end. So 30 minutes every week, as usual, in your inbox or podcast box or whatever it is. We're back. We're excited for season four. The next few months are going to be pivotal. Right. And we're calling it the Pompidou Centre Strategy. Um, the Centre Georges Pompidou in Paris, designed by a team including uh, Richard Rogers. He said the happiest day of his life was when the Paris authorities allowed him to put half the space and allow it to be completely open without a building. It's a beautiful part of Paris, which is half building and half big empty space. So will be our new podcast. So, so that, so that's, that time that's a, to, to a great mellow. example of the type of intervention I'm not sure we're going to have time for in the new <laughs> format. So I so hope you all enjoyed one. that. I going to go in a little frame Save case. it, put it to one side, listen to it as often as you like, because you're not going to get many more of those now that we're limited to 30 Unless minutes. Unless you go to my personal <laughs> private channel, which I'm still negotiating with Spotify as soon as they return my call. The Paul Dickinson Pompadour tapes. I'm sure they'll be very popular. Now then. The last few months that we've been off air have just been astonishing in all sorts of ways. And people who listen to this podcast that generally pay attention to climate change and, and kind, of, kind of what it means will, will, will not be surprised by that statement. I mean, the natural disasters that we've experienced over this summer, from the flooding in China and Turkey and Europe and India, to the wildfires and droughts in Greece and Turkey again and Italy and Paraguay and all over the place. We've had data now that suggests that in the US, and this is not only a US issue, but that's where the data relates to, one in three citizens live in a county that has been hit by a weather disaster fueled by climate change in the last three months. More than 32% of citizens in the US now live in an area that has been declared a disaster area by FEMA this summer. Now, this is 
creating enormous amounts of anxiety, as it should, amongst the citizenry around the world. As we look at what's happening, and all of a sudden we are finding people, and you may have found this in your own life, people who have always been somewhat resistant to the climate argument are now suddenly finding that that certainty is beginning to shake a bit as they realise that what's happening is really disquieting. At the same time, we are on the narrowing path towards a moment of great consequence in Glasgow. And the signs are there that are good and signs are there that are really troubling. Um, so I would like to just begin this by, Christiana, maybe starting with you, addressing the listener, how should we approach this moment? There's a lot of energy, a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiety going into this. That's great energy that we need in order to translate into the solutions and the momentum that is required. But it's also kind of hard sometimes for people to live with. So I'd love to hear your analysis of what's the most effective way to approach this moment in order to deliver the outcome that we need. Well, a bit before I go to that, Tom, I just wanted to... Um, put out the other piece that has really changed dramatically over the past few months, and that is the granularity of science. Mm. So yes, you've mentioned some of the extreme weather events that should include actually people drowning in New York City yeah. because of the very, in New York City, okay? This, this is not Bangladesh. This is not, this is New York City. Um, so the extreme weather events that we've seen over the past few months are only small little windows into what science has been telling us, but has told us yet again over the past few months that actually we are now poised at the brink of the precipice. Poised. Now, we have been talking about this on the podcast for a long time, but I have never felt the... Um, brittle nature of our position as intensely as I have this time. Maybe because I just got back from Greenland where I was there when it was 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 21 degrees Celsius, completely crazy, warmer than it was in London with all the melt and what that actually means for the rest of the weather systems around the world. So where are we on this? I, I would say that we are picking up from friends, family, community um, members, from newspaper articles, from all kinds of media channels, we're picking up, I think more than ever before, a sense of terror, a sense of terror because OMG, what scientists have been telling us for a long time is now upon us. And the fact that the science has become so evident, the reality has become so directly impacting us and that that is not just about what is happening, but about the timing of it. The fact that we really now understand that we have the rest of this decade to dramatically change the course of greenhouse gas emissions. So both the breadth of um, and, and the variety and the intensity of weather events, as well as the everyday shorter timing, has definitely led so many people to feel a sense of terror, expressed in different ways. It can be grief, it can be anxiety, it can be, you know, desperation to get to the streets and um, and demonstrate against someone. 
um, although we don't know against whom. Right. But there is there there is a very very understandable here tendency to in the front of all of this to blame someone and find some scapegoat. It's got to be either this company or that government or this civil society or that region or you know this moment in history. Someone has got to take the blame for what we are confronting. And as we have discussed so often on this podcast, yes, let's honor that grief. Let's honor that terror that we're all feeling. But is it actually helpful to where we want to go to find blame and to focus our anger on something somewhere? You know, it's much more difficult to say, oh, wow, I also have responsibility on this and I also can do something. It is much more difficult, but it gets us over the hump of feeling hopeless and helpless. It gets us to a certain degree of agency. And collectively, of course, we can do so much more if each of us assumes some responsibility. So, you know, everything that we've been saying on this podcast only magnified to the nth degree. Yeah, and, and I mean, I agree with with that, absolutely. And thanks, Christiana, for your, your insights on that. I think part of the interesting element of this moment is that as the impacts become clearer, as the urgency becomes greater, then what do we do? How do we respond to that increasing urgency and that increasing requirement to step up? Um, the good element of that could be that we increase our own ambition, we broaden the community of people that are interested in this, and we build more momentum towards systemic change. The bad element could be that it gets so serious that we start to criticize each other for not being good enough, not being ambitious enough, not being fast enough to do something. And what ends up happening, and I think those of us who have been in this climate movement for a long time have seen that sometimes at moments of great pressure, the climate movement can and, and the environmental movement as well, people who care about these issues, can slightly turn inward and say, you're not going fast enough. You should be doing more. You're giving the wrong message and that's leading people down the wrong path. And what about this? We see this in all sorts of ways at the moment. I mean, one interesting example in the world at the moment is this concept of net zero, right? I mean, some people say that the idea of net zero, that we need to get to a point where emissions are equal to what the planet can absorb, is a useful tool that is enabling business and other emitters to get on the road towards reducing their impact on climate change and doing something serious about it. Others say, this is a smokescreen, it's greenwash, we can't trust it. That's leading to a whole bunch of uncertainty around the concept, and we're left in a more complicated world. So that's a really interesting challenge for all of us. As the urgency increases, how do we hold together where we're powerful, where we have a big tent, while being realistic about what we're facing? That feels like the kernel of what we're facing here. And I think many people are grappling with that issue. You know, um, that, that reminds me of um, an interesting incident that I had while I was in Greenland. I did a lot of press work while I was there. And um, there was one journalist who um, peppered me with question after question after question. And I got the sense that he was coming from inside of himself, from a deep sense of cynicism and anger. 
And I answered his questions as best I could. But then after we finished the interview, I went over to him and I said, you know, I, this is the feeling that I get, that you are just feeling such so hopeless and helpless and angry. Um, and here's my question to you, is the question I asked the journalist. If your child is, because he had told me he had two children, if your child is crossing the street and you see a bus coming at your child, do you start by figuring out who's driving the bus? Is she or he completely alert or are they falling asleep? Uh, what is the current condition of the brakes on the bus? Um, is there a zebra stripe before the bus gets to your child? Do you begin to do all of this and to blame the the manufacturers of the brakes or the driver or, you know, those who didn't do the right signaling uh, and the right painting on the road? Or do you frankly just go at it and throw yourself into the street, catch your child, and both of you get over to the other side before the bus runs over to your child? Which way do you go? Well, obviously, that is the only thing that we can do. And here is the big ugly truth. There is a huge bus coming at our children. There is. And science has been pollucently clear about that. So frankly, we don't have another option. This is not about finding who is at fault, who is not doing their job. This is about picking ourselves up and moving to where we have to get into action. There is no other way. We have absolutely run out of time to begin to do analysis and blaming and certainly a circular fire squad in our own community. So let's just get to the work that we actually have to do and do whatever is necessary to save our children from that huge bus that is coming at them. Yep, I'll go with that one, Christiana. Thank you. Um, we got a bad review from someone who said that we shouldn't be talking to executives of oil companies and even suggested that we were making money being associated with them. I can promise you, if I wanted to make money, that I would big not podcast be, money. That's right. Yeah. I would That's be, right. no. But if I really wanted to make money, I, I'm sorry to say, I wouldn't be going to the oil and gas industry to try and make money because I don't think that's where you're going to make money. You're going to make money in the decarbonisation industries. But I do feel um, that you know maybe we could. I could have been more challenging, but I wanted. I want senior executives of companies to use the power they've got in their role. And I don't think they're necessarily going to respond to me specifically trying to punch him in the eye. But, you know, I, I feel everything you just said, Christiana, is so true. We've got to ensure that we remember that our enemy's enemy is our friend. And we are a broad coalition with this single goal, which is public safety national security, global security. And as long as, we, as long as we stay focused on that, I think we'll know our navigational North Star. Hmm. No, it's a great point. And it sort of, it makes me think, and including what Christiana said as well, I mean, you, you sort of um, demonstrated to me, Christiana, in the coalition that was built up towards Paris, that the way that you get big change is with a big tent. And that actually what you need is momentum. And that momentum and that encouragement and that progress begets further momentum, which then begets further momentum. And if you need to tweak the strategy as you go, you can do that. But then you're on the road. And actually, that's how you build progress towards it. And I, I believe that, right? And I've experienced that. That's how you can create big change in a systemic context. And also, I can understand how when we're at this moment of crisis, 
people sort of look at individual commitments of types and they say not good enough needs to be better yeah, whatever else yeah, yeah. and you can see how both we're going to have to figure out how both of those can coexist in such a manner that it doesn't become so toxic that we say to companies countries whatever it is you know get it wrong and we'll burn you at the stake but at the same time we say it has to meet the requirement of being based in science sufficiently ambitious taking us to where we need to go in order to celebrate that progress. So we do need to bring those two things together, but I I would still hold that it's the momentum that is the magic key to actually getting things moving and changing things. Yeah, it's the momentum and it is the um the collaboration across so many dividing lines that we have invented yeah. for ourselves by the way, they don't really exist. We just, you know, in our puny little brains, we have invented these uh these divisions. Um, and it's also, um, you know, and our book is so much about that, Tom, it's also about the attitude that we bring to this, right? Do we bring, now let's start by saying there's no guarantee that we're actually going to address climate in, in a timely fashion. That's, you know, let's just gulp that one down, a big, big pill of reality there. But going at it from a, uh, either from a blaming or from uh, a perspective of, it's, you know, too big and we're not going to make it doesn't help to move us further down the line. The attitude, a humble attitude of commitment, humble because there's no certainty, but commitment because we got to, there is no other option. And so, you know, a humble commitment that actually brings both of those together, um, encapsulated in the urgency that we have. I, I have never felt the urgency of climate action as much as I've had I have this summer. I don't know if that's the same for the two of you, but urgency has basically, you know, been what has really been accompanying me. I used to talk about uh, swallowing an alarm clock for all of us, and oh my God, have I swallowed the alarm clock? <laughs> well, I think yeah. I think the alarm clock's gone off, Christiana. <laughs> Tom. Yes. No, no, I was just going to yes. say, so so I am, I am, Claire is sending us very helpful timestamp updates and I could determine that the first episode after we've declared this is going to be 30 minutes will not end up being 45. So I'm going to keep us to time here. Now, we only have a few minutes left, but um, the other context that we're stepping into, despite obviously all of these remarkable global weather events and the response, the human response we're seeing to it, is the fact that we just have like, what, eight weeks now until COP26 and everything that that entails. And, and listeners will know that this is a particularly important COP because it encompasses the first real step up of ambition since Paris. It needs to work for us to continue to have real faith in the Paris Agreement. I'd love to ask you both, and you both come from this from different perspective, Paul very much with deep experience in the kind of business sector and Christiana from governments. Maybe starting with you, Paul, how are you feeling? I mean, do you think that we're on track to kind of you know, if you look at it net-net, the day after COP26, if it's been a success, the parrot, the papers will all say 1.5 is still alive. How are we doing on that road from here to that outcome coming in December? Because we've got to get there. And it's a big lift. It's a big lift substantively, and it's a big lift on the optics for reasons we've talked about. Mm, well, let me try and give a political answer and dodge the question. I mean, I do <laughs> think that without doubt that the... Um, 
the, the, the wonderful thing I'm going to say about the, the global business system is that giant investors and giant corporations just do not think nationally. So you may have all these different national divisions, but very large companies are recognizing that, you know, there's going to be some sort of uh, uh, political event uh, in Glasgow at COP26. And then after that, they're going to have 10 years of capital expenditure they've got to plan and 30 years of operational life of all kinds of equipment and business processes. So they're deeply in a process of change. And I think that the key is to the, the degree to which the political process will accelerate or decelerate that change. That's the best answer I can give and, you. And, and I would say that that's a two-way street. I would say that that is a two-way street and that, yes, the political process needs to accelerate that change, but also that corporate engagement and corporate emission reductions, real reductions, actually accelerates also policy development. So, you know, the two of them together. Yeah. And, of course, spiced up by pressure from civil society. So it's a three-cornered uh, three cornered effort. But, but Tom, I also wanted to get back to your title because I think it's very important to understand that in the best of all cases, the title of the newspapers or the front page would say 1.5 is still alive. Now, here are two titles that cannot be on the newspaper. It is impossible for the first page of any newspaper to say 1.5 is guaranteed. Yeah. That is impossible. We should be aware of that. Is, Absolutely. Yeah. We have to be aware of that. Yeah. 1.5 cannot be guaranteed in 2021. 1.5 can be very, very close to guaranteed by 2030, but not now. So let us get off, you know, this um, desire for COP26 to do the miracle of guaranteeing 1.5. Not possible. The second title of the front page that um, is possible, but that we cannot accept is 1.5 is dead. So that's why I think that your title of 1.5 is still alive is exactly that middle way that we have to fight for. It's not going to be easy. We have to fight for, we have to work toward because that represents the best possible that we can get out of the current circumstances and keeps us on a prudent path that would allow us to improve our ambition and our commitment in the future. But we're, we will not get a guarantee of delivery of 1.5 as the top global temperature increase, and we cannot allow for 1.5 to be dead. So smack in the middle. And so I, w I want to hear your analysis of where we are on that, because there are some really troubling signs, things like China announcing that they would no longer negotiate on climate as a separate issue compared to the overall dynamic and relationship with the US and with the West, which is really troubling. Because in the past, of course, China has been able to kind of hive that off and still agree on climate, even when they can't agree on other things. So we should come back to that. But I would also completely agree with you on the other point you made, and I'd like to add to it in this way. People should realise that the outcome from COP26 will be inherently ambiguous. It will not be clear the, the ultimate outcome of what comes from it. Part of that will be substantive. 
but it will be directional, right? It'll be, here's the range of what we can achieve. And it will partly be down to how we interpret that outcome as to whether we think that's sufficient. So that's actually a complicated but important thing for people to understand, that we have the power to shape to a large degree how the world sees the outcome from this COP, because it will not be clear. It will be a directional signal without absolute clarity as to where this is going to lead. Now, Christiana, we have two minutes left. Let's still try and do it. Where do you think the international politics are two months out from this crucially important COP? <laughs> well, um, you know, we have such short memories that we always think that the geopolitics that we're facing now is way worse than anything that we faced in the past. And, and that's just because we have short memory. The fact is, you know, that geopolitics has always been and will always continue to be complicated. So we can't use that as a, frankly, a very sad excuse. Yes, China is has uh, has put that out. Um, that doesn't mean that we stop trying. That doesn't mean that we stop conversations with China. It actually, you know, means the opposite. Therefore, we double down on all our efforts. India, uh, Brazil, even you know, why give up on Brazil? There are many people in Brazil that know what needs to be done. So we can't give up on anyone, and we need everyone's contribution. And Christiana, thank you so much for pointing out that governments are uh, influenced, heavily influenced by, so to say, non-state actors. So here is to everyone in the cities listening, everyone in the investors listening, everyone in the corporations listening. You can, must, and will use all your power now to push every button and pull every lever in every government to ensure that we keep that 1.5 alive. That's a great point, Paul. And, and just to add to that, I mean, the generalized commitment is important. But what we learned in the run into Paris is the personal phone call makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah Actually, no, phone a the minister, phone, phone the phone prime minister, phone the president. Makes Please more of a difference than a whole range of... Get your colleague to get your colleague to get, you know, that phone call made. Clay, how did I do? Did good. Um, you've got about 30 seconds left, so... 30 minutes? Yeah, 30 seconds to 30 minutes. And actually, your mic cut out, so it's kind of serendipitous. But 30 seconds left, so chop, chop. All right. And I'm doing the music this week, right? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Am I not? I, 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 I understood that I, I was. Okay. It's, all right, all right. No, no, no. no, no, no. Paul, Paul, can you sing the theme tune? We had promised Paul that he could do anything. It's all right, Sharon. It's all right, Sharon. It's, it doesn't matter. It's fine. <laughs> He's now pouting. I wish you could see him. He is pouting, pouting, pouting. This has been fun. Looking forward to it. It's going to be a big few months. It's going to be very busy, but it's going to be very consequential. Exciting times. Terrifying and thrilling. All right. Bye, everyone. Until next week. Bye.